Hello, welcome to the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. in Southern York County, Pennsylvania. You can join our morning live stream on Facebook or YouTube. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury. You can find more information about us at gfcshrewsbury.org. We are so excited to bring you this message today, and it is our hope that you will come to know and believe Jesus Christ more fully through it. We're in Genesis, and I just want to encourage you to this, is to read and listen with fresh ears. I've grown up in the church and I've heard the story of Genesis and read it over and over and over and over again. And I can tell you that God has done a transformational work in my life in the past couple weeks. Just as I'm looking more and more with deeper depth and focus and how, how, allowing God to speak uh, through his word powerfully uh, through this. So uh, we're gonna dive in in just a, a few moments into Genesis. Uh, and I know that you guys have been standing for a while, but you've had a couple minute rest. So I'm gonna ask if you would stand again. And um, you don't have to, but if you would like to, and the person next to you is okay with, if you want to join a hand, somebody next to you, and if not, that's okay. Don't, don't nobody feel pressured. But I'd like for us to share, uh, to say together and pray together the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Would you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's something that we prayed in that prayer that we're going to look at for just a few moments. Jesus taught us to pray this prayer. Part of this prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The coming of the rule and reign of God to where we are on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer that at Grace Fellowship we pray often. Specifically, this part of the Lord's Prayer. God's rule and his reign right here is what we desire. And you know, I can't change necessarily how, he's, how his rule is experienced or expressed around me, but I can allow him to have rule and reign in my life. And when he has rule and reign in my life and he has rule and reign in your life, we see his kingdom coming here on earth, even as it is in heaven. And there's three places in scripture I'd like to point to that, that where we see this very, very clearly. His kingdom come and his will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And one is what we're looking at right now in Genesis one and two. We see this with perfection. God's rule and reign on earth, even as it is in heaven. This is before the fall of man, before chapter three, where, where sin enters the world. So we have, again, the, the perfection of his kingdom here on earth, on this planet, even as it is in heaven. A second time that we see this in scripture is in the life of Jesus Christ. When we look at how Jesus lived and he walked among us, we see God's kingdom in the person of Christ, complete reign of God the Father in him, even as it is in heaven. What he did, what he, where he walked, how he moved, everything, the kingdom of God on earth, in earth in Jesus, even as it is in heaven. And then at the end of the book, we see it again, at the end of Revelation. And here it's a new heaven and a new earth, and all things are under his revealed reign kingdom on earth, even as it is in heaven, as the two meet, heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. So how does this tie into us right now and what we're going to be looking at in Genesis? 
When, when we look at Genesis, we see, again, when we look at these two chapters, we're seeing his rule and his reign on earth as it is in heaven, and we can look at this as a model, and it has, has been taught up to this point, we're going to be continuing to say it, is that we see it modeled in that Jesus is the main character, or God is the main character, right? Throughout all this, God is the main character. He's the one that's writing the story. And as we see man in the first two chapters, man is responding in complete agreement and alignment with God. So we're seeing here a taste of what God is desiring to do in and through our lives right now. That we would allow God's pen to be writing the story. And we would be responders that are yielding to him. This morning before service, I was sitting in here and we were praying and and I had this illustration. I wish I would have thought of it earlier. I would have tried to find it. But I had the picture of these two pens. And I don't know about it as a kid if you've ever seen, ever gotten these, but you know, like there's real big pencils, real big pens. I was thinking like, like that's the God pen, you know? <laughs> and then like the norms, ones that I use every day, that's, that's the me pen. And that's still way out of proportion, right? That, that God's pen is bigger than what we can imagine. And he's desiring to write though in his pen is an intimate story for you and for me. That we would, you know, that we would just surrender and say, God, you know, write what, what you want to write in my life in every way, in every aspect, every moment, every detail, God, you have the pen. So we're going to now look back uh, to what we were looking at last week, a portion of the story that Ben brought to us from Genesis chapter 1. I'm just going to read a few verses here if you would follow along on the screen or on your tablet, in your Bible, however uh, you would like to follow along. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And in verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now, if you remember, as we looked at the course of creation up to this point, God would go a certain, certain distance, he would say things, he would speak, things would come into being, he would evaluate and say, good, good. Good. Here, very good. Significant. As he created man in his likeness, in his own image, very good. So what we do is when we look at this, we're looking, because man is created in God's image, we're seeing the characteristics of God revealed. So for one thing is that, again, it says, let us make mankind in our image. Now, Deuteronomy 4, 6, we know that here, O Israel, the Lord, your God, your, the Lord your God is one. There is one God. And yet God exists in three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity. Although the word Trinity isn't used in Scripture, the, the teaching, the concept of, the, of this characteristic of God is throughout Scripture. We saw it in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Where we have God there, we have the Spirit hovering, and we have the Word, which is Christ speaking. So we're seeing the, the, both the unity and the plurality. And when God said, again, let us make man in our image, he created oneness and, and plurality. He created male and he created female. And we see, again, his image being born in, in human flesh, man created in the image of God. Another thing is that he's, we see God's rule. So God rules and reigns over all things, and he's now releasing rule of this earth to man to mankind. So we see, again, the, the, the unity and the plurality. We see the rule. Uh, we see how he multiplies life. It, throughout the creation story, life is multiplied. And now he, he creates man is in, in his image and he says, now multiply. Then we see God is giving. He's giving, he's giving power to mankind. He's giving responsibility to mankind. And as we are in God's, created in God's image, we were, have been created to be giving people, to allow what he has been given, giving, given to us to be given through us. So while we've touched a little bit of this in the openings, uh, opening of Genesis, I want to look a, a little more closely. In fact, I feel God has called us to look a, a little more closely at the elephant in the room. 
What does that mean? It's something that's obviously right before us that we need to address. So as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we're looking at the story of creation as God has revealed it. I want to ask you this question. Does any of the story sound at all like the dominant narrative in our culture that says that all living things came from a single-celled organism and evolved by chance over millions, possibly billions of years, even developing apes that evolved into complex human beings as we, con- as we currently exist. And I'm sure that if you're like me, we see conflict. How do we reconcile what, we've been, what we're reading and what we're studying in Genesis chapters one and two with the theory of evolution? And that's what we're gonna dive into. And just, I wanna just encourage you to join with me in seeking truth. Now you're saying, Mark, it's a setup. I know what you're going to say. You're just asking me to be open-minded. Well, I'm going to tell you right up front. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert. But I've done reading, and I've I've done reading from uh, very differing perspectives. And I've done some research. And what I'm going to present to you is, is a summation of just some of the things. This is just a brief touch on things that, that I've read and what, what I've studied. And my goal right now is that we would all seek truth and embrace truth together. And that's not just for this moment. I hope that this, this is the goal of our lives because I am convinced that I have heard and I've seen and I've embraced truth and I'm fully convinced that there's so much more that I have to learn, to understand, and embrace. That this is a lifelong process, it's not just a moment, but it's important that we apply it to the here and now. That, that we look and we see how these things reconcile because you know what, it doesn't help us at all as Christians living in a secular world to just say, I believe this and then, you know, and then just cover our ears and hum so we don't hear something different. You know, because the reality is that these two things exist and they're in, in conflict and they're in tension. Some people can see some overla- overlaps. We'll touch on that briefly. But we need to address this. What society brings to us is called a theory. But I don't know if you've heard it. I've heard it over and over again. It's presented as a fact. And we need to be careful because we can be drawn in and hear the narrative and not dig deep and feel that, that we need to draw back because I'm coming into disagreement with facts, but we need to look at it more closely. One of the big challenges, one of the fundamental challenges, the theory of evolution, is that God is not in it. True evolution is completely naturalistic. There is the absence of God. In fact, this feeds into one of the lies that Pastor Ben presented to us last week, that, that we embrace the idea that if God exists, he's far off and he's not in connection with us at all. But the reality is, as we heard taught last week and as we can embrace in our own lives, is that God is actively pursuing us. He's close. He's with us. And he is desiring to be in our lives. Some people believe that the year 1859 was a pivotal year in the history of mankind. And that was the year that Charles Darwin, his book was published, The Origin of Species. And it's in that book that, that, that what he published and what he presented, although it, he didn't create all this, there's been a process coming up to this, but the basic, what he had presented has become the foundation of evolutionary theory. And it's that there was a single cell organism sometime back somewhere, and from that organism there was growth and there was mutation. And through natural selection, um, there were changes that happened, and there were crossing of species, and species came all from that one, one single-celled organism. It happened over a long period of time, and that is what has led to us being here. And I wanna read a statement from NPR that, that, I, that I found online. It's from a few years ago. But this is a very common narrative. I want you to listen closely to what is said. Quote, we now know that all extant living creatures derive from a single common ancestor called LUCA, the last universal common ancestor. That's the acronym. It's it's hard to think of a more unifying view of life. 
All living creatures are linked to a single-celled creature, the root to the complex branching tree of life. If we could play the movie of life backward, we would find this little fellow at the starting point, the sole actor in what would become a very dramatic story lasting some four billion years, end of quote. We all know, we now know, that this is the case. Now, I want you to picture this. I'm not gonna even try to imitate it, but as I was reading this, I was, I was thinking of this. Can you hear right now the deep male narrator's voice saying these words while beautiful video is played of, of God's creation scenery around and soft music is playing in the background. We've seen it over and over and over again. This is the narrative of our culture and of our world. And and to me, I'm saddened because they're taking solace and, and, and finding peace in that we've all come from a single cell, from some complex thing that they've they've called the tree of life. And this is the story, literally, that's what it's saying. This is the story that we have. Now, we hear it presented and packaged in these beautiful, calm, confident ways. Let me present it a little bit differently. From goo to you through the zoo. (laughs) That's a little harder to swallow, isn't it? And and you you may say, Mark, how can you say something so terrible? This is really what is said. It's packaged differently. But saying from nothing, something that just existed, a little cell, to you, the only difference is that the animals are in between. From goo to you through the zoo, I feel better. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, I, I... I don't want it to seem like I'm throwing stones and sounding sarcastic, but the reality is that we need to find balance here. If we can take an intelligent look at things, then we need to look and see what is being said here, not just how it's packaged. Does that make sense? But what is presented as solid science is being refuted by more and more scientists. There are many people in the scientific community that are having problems with the questions and unresolved issues in the theory of evolution. And this started like 20 years ago, but it's been a growing group of people that are signing off as scientists. They have to have PhDs or, or, or be doctors. And they're signing off and they're saying, you know, I, you know, they're not throwing it out, but they're saying, we need to look more closely. If we're gonna proclaim this and declare it to be fact, then we need to show, we need to prove it. We need to, to evaluate it. We need to be able to bring proof to what's being said, not just throw it out as fact before it's declared as fact. And that's a growing number of scientists that are doing that. So there isn't a question that there, that there aren't mutations, that there aren't changes within species. Okay, we, we need to accept that. We need to, uh, to, to look at that because there's some things that, that we can give, give that do have credence. They do have uh, something solid to be built on. But there's no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to any organism's genetic code. And this has to happen if, if evolution is true. But there's no, new, no proof that this can happen, that genetic information can be added to genetic code let alone how the information could arise from the random chemicals in the first place, from random chemicals. And without this, without this happening, evolution is not valid. You know, so look at the science and see what science is saying. So one of the key things that is an issue, and this comes up a lot in regards to questioning uh, biblical creation, is how old is the earth and how long has man been here? So, I mean, those are huge issues because that's one of the biggest conflicts in this. It's not just process, it's age. So, young earth belief, strict belief, and again, creation as taught in the Bible, says that the earth is about 6,000 years old. Now, that is completely out of alignment with what we hear in the theory of evolution. 
But we need to understand that there are constant developments that are moving facts closer to what the Bible says and away from what evolution has been claiming. So carbon dating or the carbon-14 test, that's for organic material. Um, a number of years ago, there, was, uh, there were some remains that were determined to be tens of thousands of years old. It's a hu human remains. As science has become more exact and has been able to date, date more accurately, that person actually died within the last couple hundred years. And, and I'm saying that because we need to, you know, first information out often sticks. And that person that was thought to be 27,000 years old is now only three, having existed then, really only lived 300 years ago is a big difference. But yet it's hard to unstick 27,000 years old, even though it's disproved. So some of the rock from um, Mount St. Hel Helens, some, some of you remember in 1980, it's a, a vol volcanic uh, occurrence that happened on the West Coast in, in the United States. Some of those rocks were taken and analyzed, and, it w and obviously it can't be carbon-14 dating, it was ra radioisotope uh, dating. And the evaluation happened, and that rock was determined, at that time it was about 13 years old, that rock was determined to be between 340,000 and 2.8 million years old. Now, I want, to, I want you to see the, the difference, the variance in what is, is tested and presented versus what is truth. That that was newly formed rock, but yet it was given that kind of an age. And these are things that, that you know, you say, Mark, you're trying to poke a hole in, in evolution. I am if it's not true. If it's not true, we need to understand that there's, there's not being built on what, what is fact and what is truth. But there's an extremely important thing, and honestly, this is something I just came across as I was doing study, and there's different sciences. And, and this, I didn't realize how it applies to, to evolution, but it does. It applies strongly. That one kind of science is, is the historical or origin science, and the other is operational or experimental science. Now, historical or origin science is looking back, it's taking a look at what we have here that we can see, and then it's looking backwards, trying to figure out how, that, how it got here. So that's historical and origin scientists, and both evolutionist and creationist are in the same camp there. Okay, that's historical uh, or, or origin science. But then the operational experimental science is where, where you can go in a laboratory and you can do certain things and you can determine that th this is the way things work, and this is repeatable. That, that, you know, we know with confidence this will happen. That's how we, we have the technology advances that we do. That's through the operational or experimental sciences. But they're not the same. So, so we need to understand, again, what historical um, science is, and that is the looking back at origins. Now, it's often said that, that seeing is believing, but here's, a, here's a, a reality that we need to understand, is that what I believe impacts what I see. Okay, I want to say that again. We say seeing is believing, but, but here's the reality is what I believe impacts what I see. So when I look at anything, when I, and, and this is an important thing to know in our relationships and situations in our lives, if I have a certain belief, I can look at things and I can find support for what I believe, even if it's totally wrong. But it's because my belief system is impacting how my eyes are viewing and evaluating what I see. So when we look at creationists, and the story of creation as presented in, in Genesis, we are believing that there's an eternally existent creator that is all-powerful and all-present. And that is going to determine how we look at things. That's our belief system. Evolutionists are looking at it, and there's, there's no God in it. Okay, that we're not, they're not looking for a higher being or intelligent design. They're going from a naturalistic standpoint that says, you know, we're, we're here by chance. We've existed for tons of time. And they're going to evaluate things based on what they believe. And then I don't want to neglect this. There's another uh, in-between position that are called uh, theistic evolutionist. And that, that's a, an attempt to, to marry the two. And we're not going to get into that, but that's a very difficult thing to do. In fact, personally, I feel it's impossible. And, and I know this may be offensive, and I'm not attempting to, to offend anybody. In fact, I'd love to have dialogue if, if this is offensive with you, I'd love to have conversation. There's other people that I know would love to have conversation where we could sit down and talk and discuss this. Okay? I'm not looking for arguments, but we need to work through these things. But here's, here's the bottom line. Is Genesis true? 
or is it a myth and a lie? I mean, this, this is really, we need to land on this because it matters. Is Genesis true or is it a myth and a lie? And here's something I hold firmly to is that accurate interpretation of Scripture and true science are not in conflict. I'll say it again. Accurate interpretation of Scripture and true science are not in conflict. And this is something I almost put up on the screen, but I don't want you to quote me because it's just something that, that I've come to believe. But Galileo, I found out last night, of course, what you can find on the internet, Galileo argued that if his scientific doctrine were proven, then it could not contradict the Scriptures when they were rightly understood. Okay, he said it before me. <laughs> that, that true science and accurate interpretation of Scripture go hand in hand. They, they, they match together like a glove. I'd like to read this from uh, Answers in Genesis. I'm going to uh, touch on them in just a moment. But Answers in Genesis, it, it is a ministry. But they operate on the premise that facts don't speak for themselves. They must be interpreted. That is, there aren't separate sets of evidences for evolution and creation. I want to read that again. There aren't separate, separate sets of evidences for evolution and creation. We all deal with the same evidence. We all live on the same earth, have the same fossils, observe the same animals, etc. The difference lies in how we interpret what we study. Listen, the difference lies on how we interpret what we study. The Bible, the history book of the universe, provides a reliable eyewitness account of the beginning of all things and can be trusted to tell the truth in all areas it touches on. Therefore, we are able to use it to help us make sense of this present world. When properly understood, the evidence confirms the biblical account. When properly understood, the evidence supports the biblical account. Now, again, I can't overemphasize the importance of us finding personally, finding landing place for this in our lives. Because the, the challenge that exists is this. It's if Genesis is not true, and if Genesis 1 and 2 are not trustworthy, then the rest of the book can be questioned. And this is why I really believe that the enemy has gone hard attack against Genesis 1 and 2. Because if origin can be disproven as recorded in Scripture, then we can't stand on the rest. And that's why it's important. Not, again, I'm not just trying to push a concept or try to convince you to believe something. I, I want to see you land firmly because the reality is that, especially kids coming through school, do you realize how many atheists exist because directly related to the teaching of evolution in school? I mean, that's, that's proven, documented story after story after story of, you know, Christian kids, kids raised to believe the Bible, are told something is fact in a science class, and it shifts them to a place of being atheist because what they, what they were taught their belief now is, is totally wrong. So if I can't believe the start, how can I believe the rest? So when you feel shaken... Stand on what is unshakable, the word of God. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The word of God is safe and secure, and all I need to do is pursue God and say, God, here's your word. I know it's to be true. I know it's the, the, the authority that, that I live on. Just give me proper understanding. Help me to see. Help me to see truth. And you know what, when I've embraced something incorrectly because I misinterpreted the, the word of God, then I need to be humble and say, I was wrong. I thought it said this, but it's, it's not true, what I believed. I want to believe the truth. I want to know what the word of God says and stand on it. So I want to give you two resources, and I need to do the standard disclaimer. Um, <laughs> we're not saying that everything that we would necessarily be in agreement with, everything is presented here, but these are some really solid resources that, that I trust, that I've been researching, that I've been using. Uh, the first is, is a book uh, written by Lee Strobel, the, the Case for a Creator, and, and he was a skeptic. He was an atheist, and when he started in, in, in investing Christ, he became a Christian. Like, literally, truth of science led him to Christ. 
So he dives in and he looks at some of the icons of creation, of, of evolution, and then he goes and interviews experts, and he has conversations. So Case for Christ, uh, again, I believe a very good resource. The second is uh, Answers in Genesis. Again, this is a ministry. Uh, AnswersinGenesis.org is an excellent website. They have tons of articles. They have things that you can go back to creation, evolution. Ken Ham is the founder and CEO, uh, and they have two incredible um, in-person places to visit northern Kentucky. It's Creation Museum as well as Ark Encounter. Um, so again, you can look into that, but a, a tremendous resource because they don't avoid science, they dive deep into science. And they investigate and they, they look at scripture and see how these things come together. So again, these are two resources I would encourage you um, to look at and to research. We, we need to personally land in a solid place in, as individuals because this affects how we live and what we believe. And then as we land solid, then we can also be those that share truth and disseminate truth and bring light to lies and lead toward God. So last week, uh, Pastor Ben taught us through the six days of creation to the seventh day of rest. And now we're going to look at Genesis 2. And we're going to see some of the details um, that, that are given to add into the, to what has been presented in chapter 1. So we're going to go down through uh, just verse by verse. Again, if you have your devices or your Bibles, uh, please feel free to follow along, but the, the scripture will be on the screen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 says this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, what, what this statement right here is this. He's, we've just gone through, again, the account of the six days. This is kind of summation. This is, this is the account. It's looking back. It's pointing to what has just been said. But there's something that's significant that, that is different that I didn't see until last night when I was reading in my study Bible. That when you look at this point through Genesis up to this point, everything is God. God said. God created. God did. And that the Hebrew word for God is Elohim, which is a, a word that means a that he is powerful, an almighty God. It's a general term for God. But if you look in, in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 2, we see Lord God. Lord God. It's, it's, it's not the general term for God, which is Elohim, but it's actually Lord God, which is Yahweh alone. And Yahweh is a personal covenant-making God. That, that it's, it's making a distinction when it's coming into the creation of, of man in this deeper explanation. We're seeing him in a deeper and a fuller light. So Lord God, you're going to see, is used, used now in Genesis uh, chapter 2. So now we move to the next two verses, and these are really important. So verses 5 and 6 say this, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now what's important about this is that some people have taken this narrative as a continuation of the creation story. As far as chapter two is just a continuation of the creation story. This is actually saying, hey, no, we're pointing back. Because it's saying we're going back. We're going to give further explanation to what was just explained in chapter one. Because, again, when this is written, shrub was, were there. You know what I mean? That, that, that God had already created things. But this is actually saying, now, let's look back. Let's give a, go a little deeper. I'm going to give you some more details that are important for you to know. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. I just want you to sit in this. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. For me, when I'm singing, it's your breath in my lungs. I'm going back to Genesis. I know he's currently right now. He's the one who sustains life by the power of his word. I know that. But yet from the origin, this is so important, God is actively involved. He's taking what is natural dust. This is proven by science because we're, made, we're carbon-based, Right? So from the earth, that's been proven by science, that man is formed from dust. So dust has been created by God, but it's, it's natural, right? So we're formed from dust, 
And, and that formed, that word formed actually points even to uh, like a potter with clay. So you think about that. That God formed us from the dust as a potter would work with clay. Isaiah 45 then tells us, can the potter say to the clay, why have you formed me this, or can the clay say to the potter, why have you formed me this way? You know, we need, to, we need to understand our proper place is that we are made by him, we are made for him. And when we function in that place, we have life. So we have a natural man being formed from the dust and then God breathed, God breathed into his nostrils. So we have natural and supernatural coming together. And man becomes a living being, a living soul. We become spirit. Spirit lives within us. Now, pets and animals are wonderful. They're great companions. God uses them. But they, here's the difference. We are not like them in this way. And that we have been given the spirit, a spirit, by the spirit of God. We are uniquely made in his image. God is not speaking to this to any other, uh, to any animals or anything like that. So this is a huge difference when we look at evolution. That we're, that we're saying, God is saying, that we were formed supernaturally. Now what's, what's amazing to me is in, in this is that we look in the New Testament and God does it again. So we have, we were made naturally, or, or, our bodies were formed by the natural and the supernatural coming together, the breath of God creating in us, speaking into us that we would be a living soul. In John chapter 20, if you remember when we studied that, regeneration, what happens? Jesus dies, he rises again, he meets with the disciples and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's his breath in our lungs. We were created in his image. We were created to have his spirit alive within us. Genesis chapter two, verses eight and nine. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two incredibly important trees. God planted all kinds of trees. He created this garden, but yet he specifically points out these two and they have incredible significance. And we're gonna see this in this chapter and the next. Then verses 10 through 14, I'm not gonna read, but it's speaking of water again. So in verse six, we have streams spoken of. Here it's talking about four rivers coming out of Eden. And the two rivers that we recognize are the Tigris and the Euphrates. And according to the location of those in today's world, they're from flowing out of uh, Southwest um, Asia, or, yeah, or the Western Asia and discharge into, into the Persian Gulf. So some people would think, okay, then we have a location on Eden, but we need to remember that between creation and now was something called the flood, which reshaped the topo topography of the earth. But water is significant. Stream, we have rivers. When we go to Revelation, at the end, we have living water. We have tree of life. Do you see? Kingdom, kingdom of heaven on earth. Kingdom of heaven is what, what we, were called, we have been called to live. So verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the, the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Guys, think about it. This was it. Man was created in the image of God. He's placed in this incredible garden. He's got a great job, no sweat, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's like the perfect situation, right? And then, listen to the first words that are spoken to Adam. Now, God has spoken, if you, if you look back in Genesis chapter one, there, there is communication of God to man and woman, but he spoke to them. This is before them, okay? This is when only man was created, and the very first words that God is saying to, to man is this, you are free, you see kingdom of heaven on earth? Now I know there's not a period there. I put an exclamation point. I, I, I'm not changing the interpretation. But the first thing that, that, that God says to man is you are free. There's freedom in the creation that I have brought to you. When kingdom of heaven comes to earth, there's freedom. So what does he say? He gives, this instruction, he gives a statement and instruction. He says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. He's saying, you are free, but to keep that freedom, you need to follow my instructions. 
You are free. But if you want to live in this freedom, you need to follow my instructions. Jesus in John chapter 8 says this. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you see how the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth again? That as we follow his teachings, we find freedom. As we walk in the light, as we walk in truth, we find freedom. The kingdom of heaven coming to earth. So again, I want you to see very clearly what God is doing. He's declaring freedom. He's telling Adam how to keep it. So he's giving freedom and giving a warning at the same time, these words. He's saying, you have the opportunity to live forever in this perfect place, but you must trust that I have your good at heart and what I say is true. Boundaries are good, and they are meant to protect us from harm. We feel that boundaries are constrained, but without boundaries, we're destined for pain, we're destined for hurt. And we're going to see here, we're destined for death. Boundaries are for our good. So I want you to hear God today speaking these same words to you. I'm hearing him speaking them to me. Because God continues every day and every moment to say this. I'm giving you freedom and instructions. I'm giving you freedom and instructions. You must trust that I have your good at heart and what I say is true. I need to hear that. I'm giving you freedom and instructions. You must trust that I have your good at heart and what I say is true. So for us, from our standpoint, it can seem that God did a horrible thing because he put these two trees here and he says to Adam, you can eat everything except don't eat from that one. So in our mind, here's what happens. Adam builds the first chair, probably some kind of Eden recliner. He moves it over and sets it right in front of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and just sits there and stares at it because it's the one thing that he can't have, right? But see, we're thinking at it from a fallen mind. Because I really believe that Adam said, okay, we're good with that. I'm not going to point any fingers yet, so that'll be next week. <laughs> we're not going to point fingers next week either because we know what happens. But, but listen to this. That, that James, James in chapter 1 tells us this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. So God did not put that tree as a temptation. Okay, James explains what happens from when, we're, when we have this fallen nature is that we should not say that, I'm sorry, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But we're tempted when we're led away of our own desires, dragged away um, and enticed. And then there's the process um, that leads to sin and death. But at this point, I really believe that Adam, I don't think he had that, that evil desire. I, I, again, I, this is my conjecture when I'm looking at it. But I really believe that, that, that it wasn't the same issue as if you and I were in that garden, okay? But here's the thing, is that God planned that tree and, and say, well, why did God even put that opportunity there? Why did God put the tree there that, that he knew could bring death? And here's the bottom line thing that I think we need to embrace. If there's not choice, there's not love. Do you know what I mean? If, if, if you're forced into a situation, you don't have any choice but to do that, then, then where, how can there be love? Love is a choice. And he was given Adam this opportunity. Will you love me? You have a choice. I'm not forcing you. Will you obey what I say? You have a choice. I'm not forcing you. So then we move on to verses 18 through 20. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky he brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. I just want to say this is that God had been naming things up to that point. He named sky, you know, he, he named land, he named sea. Now in the image of God, he's saying, okay, man, you get to name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So again, creation, good, 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 very good. It's not good. God's not saying he made a mistake. He said, we're not done yet. Creation is still in process. It's not good that man should be alone. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. So 
We're coming up to the two-year anniversary, and I don't know if it feels like it to you. It's hard for me to keep track of time of when a pandemic sent us into personal isolation. I want you to think about this. Next month, be two years since the two-week lockdown. Okay. But we live in a world that's more connected than it's ever been connected before, and we became more isolated than we've ever been isolated before. I just want to say it's not good for man to be alone. I'm, please don't get me wrong. I'm not making health statements. I'm not making, but there are consequences that we are reaping and we're going to reap for decades, possibly generations because it is not good for man to be alone. This is God's word. This is the way we were formed. God exists in community. We are made to exist in community. And it is also not coincidental that God has led Grace Fellowship to focus and to move into confessional communities that are all about moving from isolation into connectiveness. This isn't a sales pitch. This is, I'm telling you, this is, you know, God goes before us. We see him do it over and over and again. There needs to be healing. And this is a way. We're not saying this is the only way, but this is a way that helps bring us from isolation and into true deep community. Now, the principles exist within ministries throughout Grace and the Dream Center. And people are touching into confessional community and then carrying the same principles to other ministries. That's wonderful. But here's the reality. It is not good for man to be alone. And some of us are saying, yeah, I know that. I don't want to be alone. I hate being alone. The situations of your life may be overwhelmed because you feel so alone. I want to invite you to go before God in communion with God and let him lead you to community. Now, we may not be able to be in, in a relationship or something in the way that we want, but God is saying it's not good for you to be alone. We're meant to be in community, to be in relationship. So Adam was doing okay. He was working and everything, but God said, you need somebody to work beside you. So in verse 21, we have this record. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, wow. Okay. I think he did, but it's only recorded this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Like, whoa, man. Um, from, for she was taken out of man. I believe that's, okay, okay, I inserted, but I really think there was, God only writes parts of it. It's not the full story, but, but what he has is true. But I'm a deep sleeper, but this was a deep sleep, and I believe it was, it was divine, you know, that he was put under, okay? It was a, a surgery happened. And while he's sleeping, God takes the rib um, from him and from that rib, uh, God creates a woman. And I just want to share a myth. I'm going to touch on this very quickly. I was raised in the church being told that this is documented by science, that that's why men have one less rib than women. And then many years later, I found out men don't have one less rib than women. <laughs> but, but, you know, they shouldn't. You know, like when I had my saw accident, if, I, if my finger was cut off and I had a son, he wouldn't be born without that finger. You know what I mean? So it's, it's things that are genetic. So, so again, th that myth didn't crush me when I found the truth. But so men and women, we have the same number of ribs usually. But, but here's, what, here's what Matthew Henry says, and I want you to listen to this, and I think it's important. Women were created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, not from his feet to tr be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him and near to his heart to be loved by him. Amen. So Adam woke up from his nap and he was no longer alone. Woman was there. He was created. And now God gives instruction. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. This is extremely, extremely, extremely important. The living God who put all things in place has defined how we should live for our good and for his glory. The covenant of marriage is defined right here, instituted by God. It's the, it's, this union is part of bearing the image of God. One man, one woman joined together and becoming one flesh. So God gives the context for intimate relationship. 
that intimate relationship can and should only happen between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. God gave boundaries for our good. He gave boundaries so that we can live in the freedom that he's created us to live in. Anything outside of this is against God's God's divine order and goes against his design. These are hard things to accept because our culture and even in our own lives, we can walk in ways that are contrary to what God says. And I just, I, I need to say this. When we embrace what God has designed and what he has told us and what he has instituted, when we embrace that, that does not make us haters or phobic. Because here's the reality, is that we've all strayed from God's design. We've all made decisions that are against what God has created us to live. And we are all guilty before a holy God. Now, God has brought solution through Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, is that, that God is not condemning. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the world, that the world may have life, may be saved through me. So God is not condemning for any of us when we're, when we're in our sin and we're living outside of God's design. God is not condemning, but we need to know, too, that he is not condoning. Does God love us where we are? Absolutely. Does he want us to stay where we are when it's not in line with him? Absolutely not. So he's calling. He's calling and he's inviting us to find the life that he's created us to live. He wants us to be free. He wants us to live within the boundaries that he has created. It's an invitation. It's a loving invitation. It's an invitation that is seen most clearly in the cross. Where Jesus said, I'll pay the penalty for what you've done and I'll give you power to live in the way that I've created you to live. And then this last statement. Let me pause. We need to be very careful to sit with this with God and his word. And I want you to hear again that Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury is not condemning things that are done against God's design, against his word, and we're also not condoning. But we want to be a vessel that God can call through because we all need him. We all fail. We all fall short. And if God, although he doesn't condemn me in my sin, if he's not calling me from that, then he's not a loving God. But he does. He calls me from it. He deals with my sin. He takes that upon himself. And he gives me power by the Holy Spirit to be changed and be transformed into the image of Christ. And then this last description, these are the last words in this account of creation. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now again, this is in the context of communion with God and communion with one another. It's in a marriage relationship. When we look at this, this is why, again, God is defined, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and become one flesh. That there is absolute open communion with God and community with one another. You know, that naked and not ashamed is childlike innocence. There was no sin. They didn't have, they hadn't eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was complete openness the way that God created us. And here's the challenge, is that so man, hey, freedom means no clothes. Let's be like Eden. No, God's not bringing this order back. Here's what he's calling us to. To be open and honest before him and one another and not having to be ashamed. That's what he's calling us to. Within the context of marriage, this verse is applied just as it's written, but in the context of community, God is calling us not to be hiding, not to be ashamed, but to be, allow ourselves to be open. This is confessional community, guys. And I'm, again, I know this, some of you may not embrace the form, but you need to embrace these concepts, is that God wants to free us from what we've been hiding. Because what we're hiding is keeping us in bondage when God wants to shine light to reveal and to heal so that before God and before one another, we can be open, we can be honest, and unashamed because of Christ. God is calling us to this. 
the beginning of Genesis is not just a record of the beginning of creation, it's the establishment of foundation for our lives. That what God puts in place here is the foundation for what he desires us to live and to experience moment by moment, trusting him, believing that he has our good, believing that, that what he speaks is out of, out of a place of all knowledge and of all love. And he is desiring for us to walk in obedience to his word for our good and for his glory. So we're gonna end with this question. Yesterday's devotional in New Morning Mercies ended with this. Do you value what God values? And what the devotional was talking about was, you know, do we put our own comfort in a higher place than, than our transformation and being conformed more and more in the image of Christ? Do we value what God values? Is us become, becoming more like Christ the priority in our lives? Or is it trying to find a place of ease and comfort? So do you value what God values? But here's, when I read it, here's immediately what came to my mind as a statement of question. I felt God speak to me and I want to share it with you. When I read, do you value what God values? Immediately I heard, God values me. Do I value me as God does? God values you. Do you value you as God does? God loves you with a love that goes beyond our comprehension. He created us, he knows us, and he communicates to us what is best for us. When I really value me, I follow in obedience what God says and how he directs. And that is what? When I follow in obedience what he, what he shares and what he directs, that is how heaven is brought to earth. That is how we experience his rule and his reign. Submitting to him in the big and the small things of my life. So as we begun our journey through Genesis, are you seeing that God is writing a story that leads to our very best and his ultimate glory? They are not separate. What is very best for me brings glory to him. Coming under his rule and reign are you like me seeing ways in your life where you're taking the pen out of God's hand and writing your story in a way that misses his kingdom reign in your life as it is in heaven? It's about giving the pen back. Surrendering and saying, God, I don't want to write my story my way. It doesn't play out well. God, I want my story, the story of my life, the decisions, big and small, to be according to your story. So I'm pressing on I'm pressing on to grow more as a follower of Christ who is submitting and surrendering to God's story and I'm discovering more and more the beauty and freedom that this brings to my story. God, thank you for your love. God, I wanna thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. God, I thank you, Lord, that you speak hard words because we need to hear them because there's a lot of words that are misleading to us a lot of words that are lies that are bringing us to dark places in our lives. So God, I pray that you would hear us, hear us now saying, God, take me, I surrender. Have your way. God, I pray that you would help us to believe more and more and more that you are true, that you are right, that you love us and you're desiring for us to experience your kingdom, your reign right here, right now, even as it is in heaven. God, we believe, help our unbelief. God, and help us now to surrender whatever you're calling us to surrender. God, help us just to be obedient, to trust you. You are good and you care for us and know what's best for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to sing some of the song that we, have sung, we were singing earlier, Build My Life. I just wanna invite you to to make this a prayer, to build your life on who God is and his word and his truth. So as we're singing this, if you're, I just, I just encourage you, just you and God, tune in with him. We're just gonna 
sing a few lines, but I want to invite you to make it a prayer, and if maybe it means coming forward and saying, God, I'm going to surrender, and this is how I want to demonstrate. I want to come forward and just surrender to you. I'm building my life on you. If it's just bowing your head where you are or standing or kneeling, I just want to encourage you to make this confession of faith. I will build my life. We hope you enjoyed this message. You can find more like it on our website under sermons. To keep up to date with our sermon series, hit the subscribe button in your podcast host and follow our social media pages. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury on the platform of your choice. If you're looking to connect with us further, then you can email us at connect at gfcshrewsbury.org. We will be back next week with another message. We hope to see you again soon.